This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter. I teach linguistics at Columbia University, and today I want to talk about new languages. There are some, or at least I've always thought so, and I want to share with you what it feels like to be a linguist who studies new languages, especially because some of you have asked, is there a such thing as a new language? And the answer is yes. And the way to get at it is not for me just to say, here is a new language. That's no fun. Let's try it this way by starting from the outside. Some years ago, it got around the way these things sometimes do just by chance, that one out of the thousands of languages in the world had died. It was a language called Bo, and it was spoken in the Andaman Islands, small islands off of India. There was something interesting about what they said about Bo, and it's something that you read and hear all the time that actually doesn't have a scientific basis. So this is verbatim what one of the reports said. The last speaker of an ancient language in India's Andaman Islands has died at the age of about 85, a leading linguist has told the BBC. The death of the woman, Boa Sr., was highly significant because one of the world's oldest languages, Bo, had come to an end. Okay, here's the off part. One of the world's oldest languages. Now, what, what does it mean for a language to be old? So apparently, Bo was older than English. Now, what the people here meant was that we can know that humans first settled the Andaman Islands probably about 65,000 years ago, and presumably they were talking, and here this bow was, and so you could say, well, that language is 65,000 years old, whereas English is only 2,000 years old at the most, if we think about what English was at a certain point back in time, such that we would have recognized it as English. So bow is 65,000 years old. And English is maybe 2,000 years old. But actually, that doesn't make sense because English did not just appear out of 
the ether when Germanic speakers hit England, or if they were calling it English before that, which people possibly were, then it wasn't something that just came out of the air somewhere in Denmark or northern Germany. There were people speaking a language called English at a certain point that was a descendant stepwise in the way that I've talked about on this show from the Proto-Germanic language that also gave birth to German and Yiddish and so many other languages. We'll never know what its speakers called it, but we know that it existed. And then Proto-Germanic goes back to Proto-Indo-European. We'll never know what the name of that language was, but we know it existed. And especially if you are one of a certain group of usually Russian linguists, then you think that Proto-Indo-European went back to something that we could call Nostratic and so on. Basically, in terms of anything that we have any reason to think, There was never a time when this language that I'm speaking now suddenly appeared where it hadn't been before. Language just keeps morphing along like a lava lamp. So, Bo, we know, went back 65,000 years more because it wasn't as if the people only started talking when they happened to hit the Andaman Islands. They've been speaking before. But then English traces back in the same way. Both Bo and English would trace back presumably to the world's first language, which would have been 80,000, maybe 150,000, maybe 200,000 years ago. So what does it mean that Bo is an ancient language? It's not that English was newer. No typical language can be older than the other one in that sense. Now, you might want to say, well, okay, but English wasn't called English until a certain point, whereas Bo would have been called that Over 65,000 years, aha, but no, no, because remember that language is always changing. We can be quite sure it wasn't written, but we can be quite sure that an earlier point, Bo was called something like maybe Po, and the vowel would have been something different. It may have been called Poo. I I hope it wasn't, but you you get my point. Before that, it could have been something like Fa, etc. We can be quite sure that 65,000 years ago wasn't called Bo. For the most part, languages are not older than one another. English isn't a new language. Bo wasn't an ancient language. They're just languages. So what about a new language? Does it ever happen? Well, you know, it's interesting. One of the only clean examples that we can see of a language actually being born is of sign languages. The best documented example at this point is Nicaraguan sign language. This is a fascinating situation where until the 1970s and 1980s, if you were deaf in Nicaragua, well, then you and your family communicated in a kind of hodgepodge of signs for basic things that you made up. But you were someone who basically had no way of communicating on a human level with the outside world. Then it's funny how chance happens. Under the Sandinista regime, one thing that happened was that the deaf were placed in one location into schools. And once these people who were relying just on home signs were together for a very long time every day, they did what human beings do and they created a new language, a new sign language, such that After a couple generations, here you had this full language, as full as any language that most of us are familiar with, and this developed in Nicaragua. Luckily, linguists have been studying it for a long time. And so linguistics and the world have actually seen a language being born. Now, the truth is that 
despite the fact that sign languages are languages in the exact same sense and to the exact same extent as spoken languages, let's face it, they don't lend themselves terribly well to the medium of the podcast. But what I want to play for you is something from a long lost special, which by all rights should have been shown by Nova, but they never picked it up. This is from 20 years ago. And so it was shown on Horizon. Europeans saw this. Americans never did. Here is Judy Kegel, who is a sign language specializing linguist, talking to an early speaker of, so to speak, of Nicaraguan sign language and talking about the significance of a new language being born and what that can mean for people. The first time I met her, she was missing the ability to tell me who she was. She was missing the ability to tell me how old she was. She doesn't know her name. In order to tell me who she was, she had to take me home and show me the papers and pictures of her family. Um, We had to share a context. She can tell me things. I can show you a bit. She can tell me what happened to her father. I asked her about her father dying, and she said three, okay? What three meant was he was shot three times. I know this from working with the other deaf signer, that she said he was shot in three places. And that's how her father died, right? Yeah. Right. But three is just not enough to give me access to the information that I would have needed had I not had prior knowledge about that. Okay. What she's saying is, I had a daughter that went away and got married, and that was it. She never came back. I had a son that went away, and I never heard from him again. You know, that's it. I'm alone. That's my life. She was language ready. The problem was she didn't get access to language within that critical period. So very interesting. And yet, as I said, this is a podcast. And so all we've got is sound. And really, because most people in the world use spoken languages, we can't help thinking that is really cool that we've seen this sign language emerge. And it's not the only one. I highly recommend a great book by Marguerite Fox about a Bedouin sign language that's been emerging, for example. But we're thinking, what about spoken languages? Because we, most of us can't help feeling closer to them. And, you know, there are such languages. Listen to this individual. It's actually this same documentary from 1997. And he's talking about how you get from a rudimentary makeshift lingo that isn't a language at all, if people are forced to use that forever, which has actually happened under rather eldritch sociological conditions that were thankfully passed, to a brand new language with the material that they have to work with. So listen to this person. The English have set up plantation economies and stacked these with African slave labor. And as a result, you had places where there were many, many, many more Africans than whites, and Africans spent more time talking to each other than to whites, and so a new language forms. John McWhorter specializes in the kind of emergency language, or pidgin, that has arisen throughout history when people like the slaves, who spoke different languages, were forced together and needed to communicate. 
The pigeon is not something that you could write a book in. It's not something that could be spoken right or wrong. It's a rudimentary, makeshift, ding-dong kind of language with very minimal structure. A creole is what happens when that language, for one reason or another, becomes the main language of a community. <laughs> It becomes a language people identify themselves through. It's something which has rules that can be spoken wrong. It becomes a full language. <laughs> now, some of you may recognize that, that that's me. That is <laughs> baby me. I was in this documentary. They flew me down to Nicaragua. And my job was to say, yes, this language that's being born is like a pigeon becoming a Creole. And we can actually see it happening. It was fun down there. I actually got to spend the most time I ever have with people using a sign language. And I got a name in the sign language. It was, it was people putting their finger over their eyebrow because I have thick eyebrows. So I guess my name was the brow. And you've never had eggs until you eat one that just came out of the chicken about an hour ago. This egg tasted like a deity. But in any case, I was referring in that clip to pigeons becoming creoles. It is a fascinating process, and history has only caught it happening a few times. One of them is a language which is now used for government and in newspapers as the lingua franca of Papua New Guinea. That's basically the right half, the eastward half of the island of New Guinea. There are hundreds of languages spoken on that island, hundreds of actual different languages, not dialects of one or two or three languages spoken on that island, according to any estimate, whether you're a lumper or a splitter. And so it's handy that colonialism, despite its horrors, did provide this lingua franca that people from all of these different language groups and ethnicities can use. It's unfortunately called tokpisan. We can't help thinking that that refers to something which here's your word of the day, micturation instead of urination. But that's not it. Pissin is from the word business. So originally it was thought of as business talk, as something for people to use to get business done, even if they didn't speak the language and they weren't the same people. But this language began as a makeshift pigeon with a smallish collection of English words and just a little bit of grammar. But because it's now been used for almost 200 years as a daily language, first by adults, now children are being born into it and have for several generations, it's a language of its own that didn't exist until the 19th century in any way. This is not English. Listen to these guys. There's a white guy coming, and I don't know whether they staged this, but it looks real. White guy is coming into a village in New Guinea, and he's going to buy some pigs, I presume, to eat. Listen to them conversing. This is not a language indigenous to the island of New Guinea, and it sure as hell is in English. And they're having a whole conversation in it. People are now living and dying in this brand new language. Hey, morning, True. Morning. How are you? You all right? Okay. Good. Now, you've been booging some bala pig wrong me looking, huh? Okay, but six bala pig is tough now. Good, bala. Good, 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 good. Also, I'm going six bala pig. Good, good, good. Now, bala pig two, four bala six down. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, I'm going to bala Good, good. Now, some... I'm going to bala bala na. I'm going to bala True. Who are we? Now... And we got sick long one him something. Him this fella, huh? I didn't have bell pen. Bell pen. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. 
If you listen closely to it, you can hear a lot of Pella, Pella, Pella. Well, I hear you've got some pigs, Sampella, Sampella pig, some pigs, Sampella. Or at one point, the indigenous guy says, I have six, but he doesn't say six, he says six Pella. Good, six good. Pella. Good, good, good. Pella was originally from Fellow. And you put fellow on the end of something roughly when it's an adjective. Grammar developed. So you hear sampella, sixpella, you have no idea what they're talking about. But that's part of the grammar of this thing that takes the very basics of English and mixes in elements of the languages spoken on the island of New Guinea and beyond. Next thing you know, you have this brand new language. Milukum. That's I look. It's not hard to tell about the me and I. Lookum. You have that m whenever something is transitive, whenever it has an object. It's a piece of grammar. It goes on and on. Tokpisin is something you have to learn. It's not as hard as Estonian, but you have to learn it. You can speak it wrong, but it's a language that was born again. It's a wonderful thing. And we can hear the moody blues depicting it. I'm sure this is what they were thinking of when they composed this stirring passage. Tokpisin, most of you probably haven't heard of. But more familiar to many of us will be various languages such as Haitian Creole, such as the Papiamentu language spoken in Curaçao, such as the Cape Vergian that is spoken in, well, I won't tell you where that's spoken, such as Jamaican Patois, such as the Gullah Creole that's spoken today in the Sea Islands here in the United States. There are dozens of these languages around the world, and they're called Creoles. It's not just something about Louisiana and spicy shrimp and old TV commercials. Creole is not Louisiana. It's something that can happen to any language. There was a language like this spoken by descendants of African slaves in Louisiana. That was Louisiana Creole French, very similar to Haitian. But there are many of these Creole languages, and they were rested most of them from plantation conditions. If you have Africans, especially Africans speaking many languages, although it could really just be one, taken from their world forever and forced to work under conditions where the language that they're going to use with the other slaves is not the language they grew up with, especially if they're going to talk to anybody other than the slaves. They're going to have to learn this European language that they've probably Never heard of. Well, if you're over the age of 13 or 14, you're probably, especially under those conditions, there's no Rosetta Stone yet. Nobody is going to bring a blackboard out into the fields. You're only going to learn a makeshift version of, say, English or French or Portuguese or Dutch, but you're living in it. And so you're not going to be satisfied with me look pig. It's going to be things like me look him pig, me look him good pella pig, etc. You're going to want it to be a real language with complexity and nuance. Next thing you know, you have developed one of these new languages. And so with Haitian and Papiamentu and Cape Verdean, what you have is a meeting between, say, African and European. What you're hearing behind me is George Gershwin's Cuban Overture, which was his attempt to create just that. And I'm playing it because 
I remember once when it's interesting how your memories can decay. I was taken to the Philadelphia Academy of Music, and I know that the person who took me was not my mother. And it wasn't my cello teacher. It was some non-male person of a certain age with an imperious demeanor. No, that was not my grandmother. I don't know who this Margaret Dumont person was. But I remember that one of the pieces was the Cuban Overture, and I thought it was quite stirring. And I swear that the woman next to me said, oh, that's wonderful, isn't it? But I don't know why that woman would have taken me to the symphony. But That is what these languages are like. So, for example, I have studied these Creole languages for a long time because the idea of language happening anew has always fascinated me. And one of them that I know the most about is called Saramakan. Saramakan is spoken in the rainforest of the South American country of Suriname, and it was created by slaves who ran away from the plantations on the coast. They were lucky enough to get away. They took refuge in the rainforest and created their own communities, which still survive today. This happened in the late 1600s, and the people are still there. Well, the European languages that they got a blink of were English and Portuguese. So Saramacan is mostly English with a good heavy dose of Portuguese words. And then it is based on two African languages mainly, one of them called Fongbe and the other one called Kikongo. And then the Dutch have run Suriname for a very long time, so there's a lot of Dutch in it. So this is a mixture of all of those languages. It started out as one of these pidgin kinds of languages and then expanded into something brand new. And today, nobody speaking it thinks about that. It is the language of a people, but it certainly did not exist before about 1680. New language. So, for example, here is somebody speaking, Saramakan Creole. They are talking about the preparation of materials to assist in land planning in the Saramakan-speaking area. So listen to this woman just speaking. This is a language that didn't exist before about 1680. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Especially that what you're listening to is mostly English words. And the only way I can illustrate that to you is to take one little snippet. And so at one point she says, That means, so then people from various villages answered and came, the old people, that's what that means. Now we can just go very, very quickly word by word. Have it, that's then. That is a combination of then, which is from English, and then the he is a word from Fongbei that means roughly, mm. so this brand new word. Disembe, disembe, the people, disembe, di was originally this and it shortened to the. Sembe, that word starts out as sombe, which is from somebody. And then, well, if you say sombe enough times, you kind of want the vowels to be the same. Sembe. So the somebody, people. So heveri sembe udi pepe konde. So udi, udi, that is for the. 
That's the original words, udi, then pepe conde. Pepe is probably from the word pair, and it means several. So, heve, then, disembe, the people, udi pepe conde, of the many villages. Conde, country, it becomes village in Saramakan. Tapikitako, okay. Tapikitako. Piki, from speak, that means talk or answer. Ko is come. And then tapikitako, the ta, is originally from stand. Say stand enough times and you might end up saying ta. Don't do that because you have things to do, but that's how language develops. So, tapikitako, they speak, they come, they answered, they answered the call. De gansembe, so de, that's they, except here it's a plural definite article. Sembe, we did de gansembe, that is from Portuguese granji, and that means big. Here, really meaning old. So all that. Now listen to her say it one more time. Isn't that neat? So what you have roughly is English words, some Portuguese words. Then you have a grammar, the way that you put them together, that's based significantly on languages very different from English. So for example, one more little snippet. The same woman is talking about how the idea is to not throw things into the river to pollute it anymore. And she says, well, Listen to her say it, because why would you want to hear me say it? That's throw it in the river, dirty the river more. Throw it in the river, dirty the river more. You just run the throw and the dirty together like that. That's called a serial verb, not like snap, crackle, and pop, but verbs in a series. That's something that a lot of African languages, like this fongbe, do. Saramakan does it that way too. So in a way, it's English in African. Very interesting. Language mixture. These combination languages aren't just languages mixing together. That happens all over the world. English is a mixed language in many ways. What's interesting about these languages is that, as I said, they are new. They are starting from the ground up. Not, of course, the cold, hard ground, but they're starting from something that isn't really a language, and then they flower into something that actually is. And that means that because these languages are new, they didn't exist until a few hundred years ago, sometimes not until about 100 or 125 years ago, they don't have the gunk that older languages are accreted with. So, for example, little something I've probably brought up on this podcast, Navajo doesn't have any regular verbs. That's the kind of gunk that accretes in a language. I say that all the time in print. It's like Gail Collins writing about how Mitt Romney carried his dog on top of his car on a vacation. I'm overdoing it, but I find it so interesting. There are eight tones in a lot of varieties of the Hmong language. That's something that happens over time. It accretes. The language gets gunked up with that, and babies can learn it. And by the time they realize what a feat it was, they're too old to not have learned it. Verbs with vowel changes to mark the past tense. Does that sound technical? Because it isn't. It's sing, sang, run, ran. The other day, my Dahlia said that she sung something and then she said, well, actually, I should have said sang, right? So she's learning it. But imagine having to learn something like that if you have more to do than a five-year-old does. Grammatical gender. Why is the moon a girl? All of that stuff is what older languages are accreted with. The wonderful thing about these new languages is that they don't have that crap yet. And so, an example, if you're a New Yorker, you'll often see Haitian Creole on a subway sign. 
I came to the studio today on the subway because that's how we New Yorkers get around. And there was one bit on one of the signs. It's saying that you can't bring a hoverboard onto the train. I honestly don't know what a hoverboard is, but I was reading for grammatical content. And so it said, Haitians, please forgive my pronunciation, but I'm trying my best here. What it meant is you can't bring one on the subway. You cannot bring one on subway. Okay. Now, anybody who sees Haitian Creole in print or hears it when you start to wrap your ear around it, if you don't speak it, what it is, is it's French without the mess. And so, ooh, that is the pronoun for you. Ooh, pakapab. There isn't some separate subject and object form. You just have ooh. Or, ooh, pakapab, you can't pa. Now, we've talked about the French negation, the headphone negation, where tu ne marches pas. And so you have to have the two things. None of that with Haitian, just pa, kind of the way that it should be. Or hoverboard does not have a gender. There's no pretending that the hoverboard shaves or that the hoverboard could give birth to other hoverboards. None of that in Haitian. It just gets to be itself. And so poteyun, carry one. They're not a bunch of different yuns according to gender. So in a way, I mean, God bless French. It's the first language I pretended to learn. But Haitian is kind of, it's French, but without the garbage. And that's what Creoles are like. Saramakan is the same thing. So it's not just that English combined with Fongbei. It also gets rid of the things from English and Fongbei that make a language hard to learn and that a language doesn't need. And so Saramakan is tonal because Fongbei, like any good African language of its family, is tonal. Saramakan has tone too, but not in the complicated way that Fongbei has it. Fongbei tones are like Chinese tones. If you don't use them, then you're not speaking the language. But with Saramakan, you cannot use the tones and you can be understood. You can even get insincere compliments. And so back when I was working hardest on Saramakan, I remember being told, oh, you speak it, John, you speak it. And I did not speak it. I spoke it like a, a nine-month-old but I could get my thoughts out. I could understand most of what they were saying if they accommodated to me. And that was despite the fact that I had no sense of what the tones were. That's because they're not as entrenched in the language as, say, in Chinese, where in my quest to teach myself Mandarin, I've just now gotten to the point that I can walk into, for example, the dry cleaner that I use where the people who work in it speak Mandarin. And I can say something and actually be understood because it used to be I'd say something and it was as if I had said something in my native Albanian. Now I'm just beginning to get it, but I have watched Chinese people, a Chinese waitress once tell somebody, she just had a sense of humor so she could get this across. Somebody was trying to speak Chinese and she said, your tones suck. And I'm sure that that's what I sound like too. Saramakan's easier to not suck with the tones in. There's a sentence that has been heard for the first time today and will never be uttered again. One must be honest when one puts forth one's ideas about how languages change. And that is that there are some people who study Creoles who think that I just committed a heresy by telling you that Creoles are language born again. There are people who will tell you that 
took pisson and languages like that where we know that it developed from pigeon and then plantation creoles like haitian they're just alike in terms of what happens to the language that provides the words and being based on a certain version of the grammar that the people used who spoke the language from their native languages. So they're just alike, but plantation creoles developed differently. And we're not supposed to say that they developed from pidgin languages because it's insulting to say that Africans ever spoke just pidgins because that's racist. And because people have said crummy things about creoles in the past and they still do so we have to be careful yeah racist and you know i try to keep things happy down here in lexicon valley but we've got to keep it real and so i I had to go there so it isn't that language was born anew it's just that creoles are mixtures like any other language it's just like english it's just like cantonese or thai or czech all languages formed the same way and you know if you find creoles interesting and you dig in after this show, you're going to run into this kind of perspective. It's going even mainstream. There was a piece in Nature, actually, a couple of weeks ago, saying that grammars are robustly transmitted. And that was code for what Creoles are, is languages meeting and sharing their grammar, kind of like you share saliva when you give somebody a good tongueful kiss. But that it isn't that language was born anew. It isn't that language started out as something makeshift that a person can't be a person in and then grew back to the moody blues into something brand new. It's really just that language is mixed. And since that's true of Mongolian and Estonian and Navajo and everything else, then there's nothing to see. The idea is no, there's no such thing as a Creole in the technical sense. You know what? That doesn't work for me. And partly... It's because if that's what Creoles are, then frankly, it's boring. You hear that music? That's kind of a musical evocation of boringness. Now listen to the people trying to have a conversation. I'm sorry. That's what it's like to say that Creoles are just one language is mixed together like all the others and that Creole studies as a discipline ought to just shut down. But of course, the question is, Is this view of Creoles as just mixtures, as good, heavy French kissing, is it correct? Is it right? Many things that are right are boring, like differential quotients or Kierkegaard. I'm not going to say that Creolists who disagree with me on this are wrong because that would be unprofessional. So I'm not going to say that they are wrong. I'm not going to say that, but I will say this. And this is important. The nature piece was written by Damian Blasi, who I've never met, and Susanna Michaelis and Martin Haspelmath, who I have met, and they are great linguists. I just have a polite disagreement with their perspective. But for anything you read on Creole languages by the following people, yeah, I have to, I have to name them. There's an issue of empiricism here. Sali Coco Mufwene, Michelle de Graff, Enoch Abo, or Umberto Ansaldo. Please read it alongside something by the following people. Mikhail Parkval, Peter Bakker, Imeric Daval Markison, or, well, you can imagine who the other one is. I want you to treat it like bourbon. You have a bourbon, then you have some water. One more bourbon, but don't forget your water. And repeat, but then before you go to sleep, have one more nice big glass of water and keep another glass on your nightstand. Me and my pals are the water, in case you weren't getting that. And on that, you can reach us at Lexicon Valley at slate.com. 
That's Lexicon Valley at slate.com to listen to past shows and subscribe, or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. Mike Volo, thank you for editing this episode in particular. And I'm John McWhorter, and always remember, keep hydrated. <laughs> 